Wonderful. Uh, before we hear uh, from God uh, in our passage today, which is Numbers chapter 11, allow me to pray and ask him to help us understand his word and apply it with a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. Let's pray. Our blessed Lord, you have caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Uh, grant so, us so to hear, read, mark, learn and inwardly digest them that encouraged and supported by your word, we may embrace and hold ever fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please open them to Numbers chapter 11. Uh, We're going to read the whole chapter. uh, And a bit of context as you get there. Uh, Numbers chapter 11 uh, is a third of the way in. Uh, Israel has just come out of Egypt. Uh, God has brought them out of Egypt and they're heading towards the promised land. They've done a head count. They've set up where they're going to sleep. They've set up the tabernacle in the centre of their um, community and all this at God's command. So, so far, so good. And then we get to Numbers chapter 11 where the wheels begin to fall off. Uh, So let's, let's take a look and hear from God's word in Numbers chapter 11. It says this, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tiberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bedulium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills and beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people wailing throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant, and why have I not found favour in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all these people, this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once, if I have found favour in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, 
whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them uh, take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. I will, I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am number 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month? Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my words will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. The spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so uh, they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day, and all night, and all the next day, and gathered quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried those who had the craving. From Kibroth Hatava the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. This is the word of the Lord. Many people think that life should be pleasant and easy. I know I certainly do. Uh, we want life to be easy and fun. Uh, in short, we want heaven on earth. Uh, but if you've lived on earth for, for more than a day, you'll realise that that's not how life works. 
You see, life can be hard and challenging most of the time. Our things don't often go the way that we want. And in those moments, it's quite easy to complain, isn't it? There seems to be a built-in feature in each of us that when things don't go the way that we want, we need to let other people know about it. A complaining has become one of those respectable sins. Yes, we know it's bad, but we, we give it the, the casual wave along. It can become a pattern in our brains that when something bad happens to us, we complain. And it can become a culture, a culture of complaining. And that's what's happening with God's people in Numbers chapter 11. Everyone is complaining. Instead of focusing on what they do have, they complain about what they don't have. And as we saw and will see, it was dangerous for them, but it's also dangerous for us too. Sure, complaining is bad for us, not just because it affects our mood and our mental health, but it's dangerous because it communicates something about God to God. You see, ultimately, complaining is a rejection of God. It either rejects God's goodness or God's power. For instance, complaining is like saying that God is unwilling to fix our situation. Therefore, he's not as good as we would like. Or, or maybe uh, complaining is like saying God wants to help us, but he just can't help us. So he's not as powerful as we would hope. You see, either way, we're rejecting the God of the Bible, who is both good and powerful. So let's dive into this historical account of Numbers chapter 11 and see how God wants us to respond to life when things go bad, when things are hard. Our big question today is, how can we thrive in life's hardships? We can look for God's provision, God's power, and God's presence. God's provision, his power, and his presence. So firstly, we need to see God's provision for us. We need to see what God has done for us as we're going through our hard times. We need to see that he's been gracious to us and that'll help shape the way that we view our situation. Take a look with me at the first verse, uh, from starting at verse 1, the, this first scene of the Israelites. It says this, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. You see, they're starting to complain about their misfortune. Literally, it's the evil they are experiencing. Essentially, what they're doing is they're complaining about how God is treating them. Is God really good? They begin to wonder. You can hear the faint whisper of the serpent in the background, can't you? Oh, God's a killjoy. He doesn't want you to have good things. He doesn't care about you or your thoughts. Wow. Mind you, God has just rescued them out of Egypt with their families, their firstborn children still breathing, the clothes on their back, a lot of animals, and even some of the Egyptian plunder. But they've conveniently forgotten all that, and all they can see is their present situation, their present hardships. You see, they're forgetting how God has been graciously providing for them, literally leading them in the wilderness by a cloud during the day and fire by night. Just look at Numbers chapters 9 and 10 when you get home. 
And so it's no wonder that God is angry with them. Although God is good and gracious, he's also just and righteous. And so the consequence of rejecting God's gracious provision is death. In this case, it's, it's death by fire. Perhaps you're thinking, well, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? But remember, they're rejecting God's goodness. They're, they're rejecting God's character. They're basically saying, God, you're no good. You're no good. And they're blaming God for their hardships. And we know from the New Testament that those who reject God's provision uh, will experience a worse fire than they experienced, an eternal fire. And the only way to avoid this fire for us is to trust in God's provision in Jesus. Not just for salvation, but for life in the here and now, from Monday through Sunday. You see, Jesus has set us free. His perfect life and sacrificial death has set us free, enabling us to live life to the full now. A life that God has designed us to live. Not a trouble-free life, not a trouble-free life, but a life that honours God. You see, after the Israelites complain, they cry out for mercy. Now, we see that there in verse 2. It says, Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. You see, God is gracious even then, and he's, he uh, preserves them. But unfortunately, you know, like kids, they don't seem to learn their lesson. No offence, children who are here with us, we're glad you're with us. They end up complaining yet again, but this time it's about the food. Uh, look at uh, verses 4 to 6 with me. They're complaining about this supernatural food. 4 to 6 says this. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. If only, they whine, if only we had meat, then our lives would be complete. <laughs> no comment. This is recorded. Um, you see, we can fall into the if only trap, can't we? I mean, I know I have if onlys at the back of my mind. You know, what, what's your if only? If only you had something, then your life would, would just be that much better. It would be complete. Maybe it's more money. Maybe it's to be in shape. Maybe you'd like a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife or a car or a boat or a house. For the Israelites, it's meat. Once again, they're rejecting God's goodness and his gracious provision. They've got selective memory right now. They're conveniently forgetting the harsh treatment of Egypt, you know, the slavery, and they're elevating, they're idolising the Egyptian food. Oh, it was delicious. And we can do that too. We can do that too. We can reminisce about fun experiences in our past life, perhaps, before you were a Christian. We can look back fondly at a romantic situation that was potentially uh, destructive and unbiblical. Or we can look back at 
a previous addiction we may have had with, with games or porn or alcohol or whatever it is. And we can remember those endorphins and go, gee, that was good, wasn't it? You see, for me, I, I used to be addicted to games. I would play them constantly. And when I wasn't playing them, I was thinking about playing them. I was doing it at, you know, in class, on the toilet, in, you know, I won't go into details. I was doing it a lot. It, it was getting in the way of my responsibilities and commitments, you see. It was fun, but it had a very steep cost. The cost was, it was getting in the way of my relationship with my family and my relationship, more importantly, with God. I wonder if you have a similar story in your own life. Thankfully, God graciously uh, re relieved me of the need to play games constantly and think about them because of Jesus. I'm not perfect, of course. You see, God has set us free. If you're in Christ, he has set you free from slavery, from addiction. But sometimes we can be discontent with that, with God's provision, can't we? We can look back at our old life, our old ways with rose-coloured glasses. We forget the miserable nights, the fighting, the destroyed relationships and the distance it created between us and God. We forget the feeling of being trapped, helpless, powerless, to overcome it. And so the next time you're tempted to complain, remember the mistake of the Israelites and see God's provision for you, particularly in his son Jesus, how he's rescued you so you don't need to do those sorts of things. He's brought you from death and slavery to life and freedom and he gives you the Holy Spirit so you can live a new way, a better way. So why not thank God instead of complaining? And why not let God's provision in your life shape the way that you look at your hardships, at your trials that you go through? Can you see how this is very different from gratitude journals? Uh, they're all the rave at the moment because of the positive benefits they, they have. And it's also different from the stoic way, you know, just grin and bear it, the stiff, stiff upper lip. No, we acknowledge that what we go through is hard, it's tough. But we also see that God has given us so, so much and we should be grateful and thankful. You see, God has graciously given us all we need, all we need in Christ. And that will help us thrive in life's hardships. The second thing we can do to thrive in life's hardships is to look at God's power. We should interpret our whole situation not based on our own strength, but on God's power. We need to believe that God is powerful enough to do what he has said. So coming back to the passage, after Moses hears the complaining people, he's a little bit upset. Oh, you can see it there in verse 10. It says, Moses heard the people weeping through their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. He's displeased. You see, after this, uh, Moses and God have a bit of a back and forth about what to do with these complaining Israelites. And what does Moses do? Well, he complains to God. You see, he's caught the complaining bug that has been going around. Listen to Moses' complaining, verse 11. It says, Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favour in your sight that you lay the burden of all these people on me. 
You see, now Moses is rejecting God's goodness, just like the Israelites were doing in verse 1. And then he fires off all these complaining questions in verses 12 to 15. Did I give birth to these people? Did I, where am I supposed to get all this meat? You know, we don't have refrigerators out here. Where am I supposed to get all this meat from, God? You see, he's venting his frustration to God. And then Moses pleads for God to put him out of his misery. We see that there in verse 15. It says, if you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I have found favour in your sight, that I might not see, may not see my wretchedness. Wow. Imagine if God had granted that prayer request. No more Moses. The sentence would stop there in our Bibles. But it continues. You see, Moses is not thinking straight at this moment. He's forgetting God's provision and he's also doubting God's power. The Israelites are so unbearable to Moses that he wishes that he would just die. Death would be a sweet relief. And yet God is still gracious to Moses. We see that there in verses 16 to 20, how God graciously deals with all his issues. Firstly, God sorts out his leadership problem by commanding 70 elders to assist him. Then he says, then God says, I'll come down and I'll speak with you there and equip the, the men to lead. And then, says, and then God says, I'll sort out the meat situation, no need to worry. And what does Moses do in response? Does Moses thank God for this gracious answer? Does he praise God for promising 70 assistants? Imagine that, 70 assistants. Uh, no, he doesn't do those things. He, he then questioned God's power to do what he said. Never mind that Moses has just seen what God's done firsthand, right? Back in Egypt, 10 plagues, parting of the Red Sea, burning bush. Apparently for Moses, a month of meat, that's way too hard, cannot be done. So instead of looking at God's power, <coughs> Moses doubts God, he doubts him. God could have easily judged Moses on the spot, then and there, like the Israelites before, but God doesn't do that. He's gracious with Moses. Instead of fiery judgment, he just gets that simple rhetorical question in verse 23. Is my hand short? Is my hand short? And then God says, now you will see. Now you'll see whether my words will come true for you or not. And what happens? They do. They do, just as God said, all according to his power. And so it comes back to us that when we're going through something that is just so overwhelming, we just cannot see a way out. It cannot be done. We need to remember we, we are children of the God who is powerful enough to do what he says. He is capable, able to do what he has promised. In those moments, we need to focus on God's power and not our own strength. We need to see how he solved our biggest problem sin and death by sending his son Jesus. It's not about how strong you feel. It's about how strong God actually is. And so as you look at God's power, hopefully by his grace, you'll be less tempted to doubt his power and that'll enable you to go through life's hardships in his strength and not your own. Our destination is secure. Our God is powerful enough to get us there whatever life throws at us, it doesn't matter. 
So the third thing we can do to thrive in life's hardships is to look for God's presence. Uh, we must see that God is with his people and we need to reflect on God's presence as we go through life's, life's hardships if we're, going to, if we're going to thrive. And so coming back to our passage, uh, but after the back and forth between God and Moses about what to do with the Israelites, um, Moses actually obeys God and he sets up the 70 elders and uh, God comes down as he promised and speaks with Moses and equips them to lead. We see it there in verse 24 and 25. Look, look briefly with me there. It says, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Can you see God's presence there? Can you see how God graciously comes down, speaks with Moses and equips the men to lead? God has actually reminded Moses of this back in verse 20. You see, in verse 20 is the crucial verse in this whole chapter that we need to wrap our heads around because it gives us God's analysis of what's going on with Israel, with the Israelites. Look with me at verse 20. Uh, let's look at 19 and 20, but particularly verse 20. It says this, You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? If you underline your Bibles, underline that. Not the church Bibles, don't underline those, it's not covered. Uh, underline your own Bibles, underline you have rejected the Lord who is among you. You see, complaining is a heart issue. The, the people of Israel are rejecting God who is in their midst. He's with them. They're failing to see God's presence in the middle of the camp, creating this whole mess. You see, in this passage, Israel, Israel loves Egypt more than they love God. They long for the pleasures of Egypt more than the presence of God. Serious question for you and me. Why did God bring them out of Egypt? Was it for the better food or was it not to worship him without restriction? A spoiler alert, it's not the food. Right? You see, God graciously rescued the Israelites so that he could be with them and they could worship him. And it's the same for us. That's why God saves us, so that we can be with him. It's not about a hassle-free life or a trouble-free life or a life full of health and wealth and prosperity. It's about worshipping God and being with him. So therefore, those of us who are in Christ, who believe in the gospel, who believe in what Jesus has done on the cross, his finished work, we have the privilege of having God's spirit dwell within us. We can't be any closer to God. This is the heart of the gospel. We get to be with God now and forever. And we can experience God's presence even more, the more we thank and praise him for his powerful work of salvation and, and our ongoing provision. Uh, the more we turn from sin 
and go towards godliness. The more the Holy Spirit renews our hearts and minds through the scriptures, we experience God's presence. Just think for a moment what heaven will be like when we'll see God face to face without sin and the effects of sin, with each day being better than the last because we will know more and more of the infinite God and have more reasons to thank him in his presence. And so, serious question, how are you going about looking for God's presence? How are you going at focusing on God's presence? Or are you like the Israelites, longing for a pleasant, a pleasant meat-filled, hassle-free life? Or are you longing to worship God and be with him, come what may? I struggle with this, of course. It's hard to focus on God's presence. So many distractions and so many desires. I wish I focused more on God's presence daily. It would be a blessing for me, I think. I think C.S. Lewis gets this right. He says that we are like children, are too easily amused by making mud pies in the slums, failing to see how much better it is uh, to spend a day at the beach. Enjoying God's presence is the day at the beach, folks. This whole chapter ends on a dark note. God actually gives them what they requested, the requested meat. They get meat in spades, so much meat that they begin to get sick. Ironically, the Israelites who craved Egypt get an Egypt-like plague upon them. Those who craved ended up in the grave. That's literally what the place is called, graves of craving in verse 34. Or as I like to call it, a grave mistake to crave. (laughs) However, there is a glimmer of hope as this chapter ends. Do you see it? It records how the Israelites are moving ever so slowly toward the promised land. God's still providing for them, you see, and leading them through the wilderness. Our first Bible reading in 1 Corinthians 10 states that this happened for you and me as a warning of not rejecting God's power and his goodness. We're to focus on God's provision, power and presence if we're going to thrive in this life. And so in summary, complaining speaks volumes about what's going on in our hearts. Ultimately, it's a rejection of God. It's a rejection of the God of the Bible. It has consequences in this life, and if left untreated or unforgiven, it'll have dire consequences in the next life to come. And so 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that God's actually provided us all with a way out, a way to thrive in life's hardships. The way out is Christ. We have all we need in him. He defeated sin and death and freely gives us his spirit. God's gracious words and powerful acts should shape the way that we view our present day and our future. Now that's where our hope should be, fixated on the provision, power and presence of God. Now let me ask him to help us do this. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for your word. Uh, we thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve that when we complain and grumble, you are, you are willing to forgive as we repent and cling to Christ. Please help us do that each and every time 
we uh, recognise our, our sin and shortcomings. Uh, please wash us, enable us to live lives worthy of the gospel. Help us look at your provision, power and presence in our own life. And as we journey towards heaven, may that be our ultimate hope. And uh, I pray that you would uh, yeah, bless each and every one of us that we may glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.